Welcome again. Welcome everybody that's online. We are glad that you're with us. So uh, we're in this series, the end of Ephesians chapter 6, uh, called the, the Fight of Your Life. And uh, we're learning about spiritual warfare. And uh, so we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6. But we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament, look at some passages, and finish up what we were talking about uh, last week. So uh, let me start with this. In the 1920s, the American Tobacco Company wanted to make their main brand, Lucky Strike, stand out from other tobacco products on the market. So according to a book called The Attention Merchants, they hired an advertising expert named Albert Lusker. Lasker, sorry. And so this was Mr. Lasker's strategy for you know, growing their brand, increasing uh, their sales. They presented Lucky Strike as a health tonic. Because when you think cigarette in 2020, you always think health tonic, right? This was 100 years ago, though. But specifically, it was presented, this was their strategy, that it was a cure for the problem of sore throats caused by most cigarettes. So cigarettes cause sore throats, so you, could, so you should smoke a different cigarette to cure that. Um, so, with an, a new claim that, quote, roasting removes harmful irritants that cause throat irritation, including harmful corrosive acids, they adopted the slogan, your throat protection against irritation, against cough. And so, then in driving home the hygienic benefit of all of this, they ran, ran an ad campaign that Mr. Lasker labeled, quote, precious voice, with testimonials from opera stars and other singers. He also recruited doctors to tout the health benefits of smoking Lucky Strikes. One advertisement features a doctor in a white coat holding up a packet with a copy. 20,679 physicians say Luckies are less irritating your throat protection. Now, we kind of laugh at that. And, and think that's silly in, in 2020 for the most part, right? We've, why though? Because we've ha heard all these ad campaigns put out by the government about the dangers of smoking cigarettes now, right? See how influenced we are in our minds by the things uh, around us? Now, I got broken from ever wanting to smoke because uh, my grandfather was a tobacco farmer, and I worked in it when I was a kid. And one time when I was really little, I was just messing around in it before I was old enough to work in it. And I accidentally, it was, the gum was still on my fingers, and it got in my food, and it was so disgusting, I was never tempted to smoke the rest of my life. That's a true story. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point of this is that um, they were twisting the truth to make something sound good in order to deceive people in a way that was ultimately going to harm people for their benefit. And I think that's a pretty good picture of how Satan works, of, of what we're seeing in this passage so far. That Satan twists, that he schemes, he, he, he deceives in order to ultimately harm us because the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy so just to review just for a couple minutes from last week, and then we'll move ahead. Remember Ephesians 6.11. This is the, the part of Ephesians that this is based on. And we're going into the Old Testament to amplify this. And then next week, we're coming back to the latter part of this passage. And over the next few weeks, we'll unpack the armor of God, what that means, what that looks like, how we put it on in our lives. But Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So what we're talking about is the wiles of the devil, his strategies, his schemes, his trickery, his deception in order to destroy us. Because that's what we talked about. Satan's desire is to destroy us. His method is deception. I'll share this quote and shared the last couple of weeks, but Thomas Brooks says, Satan's first, devi first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait, hide the hook. Now, 
We're looking at four strategies, four schemes of the devil based on Warren Wiersbe's book, The Strategy of Satan. We looked at the first one last week, so uh, let's review for a minute, and then we'll try to cover the other three uh, this morning. I got through them in the first service, so I need to do it again this time. Hopefully, I will manage my time well. But, um, so we talked about last week that Satan is what? Satan is a deceiver. His weapon is lies. His target is, well, more specifically, what part of us? Our minds. And so that means our defense is what? It's Jesus. All this is Jesus. But specifically, it's the truth of God's word. So Satan wants to deceive you and I. He lies to us in order to do that. He's attacking our mind when he does that. And the only defense we have is the truth of the, the word of God. Now, we spent a whole message on that last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it. I think it's very practical. But we, we spent you know, a, a whole message on that one just because I think that's the primary way that Satan works. I think it undergirds, it runs through everything else he does, including what we're going to look at today. Now, we don't have as much time to spend on these today uh, like we did last week. We've only got about 10 to 15 minutes on each one. But uh, let's try to get through these other three strategies today. So the second strategy I I want to point out. And really, what Wearsby's basing this on in his book is there are four specific instances in the Old Testament where you see Satan directly attacking people. We looked at one last week, which is Eve. But today, we're also going to look at Job. We're going to look at David. And we're going to look uh, at Joshua, the high priest in the book of, of Zechariah. So let's, let's think about Job for a minute. The second uh, deception or second strategy is that Satan is the destroyer. And his weapon is suffering. Do you know that sometimes Satan attacks us through suffering? Now, understand God also uses suffering. And I think I should say up front, because I think this will give some clarity, is I believe the Bible teaches, and I believe we'll see this in, in these uh, scriptures today, is that in every situation, Satan is working for evil, God is working for good. Because sometimes, you know, we ask the question, is, is this from the devil? You know, is it a temptation from him? Is it a test from the Lord? You know, what's happening here? Uh, I, I think in most cases, there's maybe every case, there's some of both going on. It can be used either way. So his weapon is suffering. Now, now think about Job. Uh, you know, we kind of know the story of Job, probably if you have much Bible background at all. Uh, you know, Job chapter one, at the beginning of it, it calls him blameless and upright, said he feared God and shunned evil. He had 10 kids and um, he, he was very, very wealthy. Uh, in fact, it says in verse three that he was the greatest of all of the people of the East. Chronologically, this may be the oldest book in the Bible. A lot of scholars think that. But the greatest of all of the people uh, of the East. And over the, the next few verses, it talks about how he would offer sacrifices for his kids and, and this kind of thing. But then starting in verse seven, Satan appears before the presence of God. And um, in verse 8, the Lord says to him, If you consider my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. But Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Now, a couple of things we need to see there is God is sovereign over all things, including Satan. Satan can't do anything apart from God allowing it, at least, to happen without his uh, permission. That God has a purpose in everything uh, that he does. And sometimes God fulfills his purposes by using Satan as his servant in a you know, 
Satan maybe thinks he's doing what he wants to do, but you know, like we talked about, it's like kind of like you're playing chess, but God got the checkmate on the cross, and now he's using him in ways that he sees fit. And so Job, uh, or, or, or Satan went out to do this, and you know, Job lost his kids, he lost his servants, he lost his wealth, he lost his possessions, but then notice his response in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a statement of faith, right? Not just when things were good, but when things were bad. So Satan's wanting to use this for evil. God's wanting to use it for good. Now you go to chapter two, Satan appears before the Lord again, and he asks Satan uh, the same question, but uh, he adds to it, uh, you know, he says, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited him against me to destroy him without cause. But Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse uh, you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And so he's in misery. He's in agony. He's had all these things happen around him. Now he has this happen within him. His wife says to him in verse nine, curse God and die. Escape this misery. Right? And, and sometimes we may feel that way. Actually, obviously, a lot of people feel that way in our world today. I mean, just think about how suicides are on the rise. Overdoses are on the rise just since COVID started. I read a statistic the other day, and I don't remember exactly where it comes from, and I don't remember the exact age range. I think something like the American Psychological Association, that may not be exactly right, but for people like from 18 to, I don't remember, 24, 26 or something like that, they're reporting that a quarter of them have considered suicide during this pandemic. But notice what Job said. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And Wearsby describes this experience in this way. He says, Satan wants to control the circumstances around the body so the believer will suffer. He wants to touch the body and create suffering. All of this is illustrated in the story of Job. First, Satan attacked Job's body through the circumstances around him, and he lost his children, his wealth, and the favor of his wife, wife, friends, and neighbors. Then Satan attacked Job's person with a horrible disease. When Job looked around, his situation was painful. When he looked within, it was even more painful. And when he looked up, it seemed as if God had forsaken him. You ever felt this way before? But Job maintained his faith in God and was honored at the end. It is important to note that God was always in control. Satan could not attack Job's possessions until God gave him permission. He, he couldn't attack Job's person until God allowed it. Satan cannot touch the child of God without the heavenly father's permission. This is a great encouragement to us, for we know that whatever suffering may come to our lives, God is or, has ordained it and is in complete control. Say, why would God ordain suffering? Well, remember that suffering is the natural way of things in a fallen world. God can't just magically eradicate it because he would deny his very nature. What we looked at in Genesis 3 last week, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're gonna die. And so the world and every one of us is in a state of decay experiencing the effects of the fall. But God is so gracious and so great and so good that he can even take that, send his son, bring redemption out of it, and choose to use suffering for his glory and our good. That's how God's working. So, but Satan... His weapon sometimes is suffering. His target sometimes is our body. And you say, Jimmy, hang on for a second. Yeah, you know, you've taught us before that when, when Christians teach, like if, if you've got sickness that you're in sin and it's Satan or something like that, that we shouldn't believe that. 
And I'm still saying that. Sometimes. I want to point out to you there are some different reasons that we experience physical suffering and sickness, according to Scripture. I think there's at least seven. So in a given situation, remember, Satan's working for evil, God's working for good. But in a given situation, it may be one of these reasons. It may be a combination of several of these reasons. But sometimes we experience physical suffering, like Job did, because it's a spiritual attack. It's an attack of the enemy. Sometimes it's because God is disciplining us. And as a loving Heavenly Father, he's using, he uses things in our lives, and sometimes that's physical to get our attention. You know, if you're in sin in your life and you're suffering, that's God's gracious clue to you that you need to repent and come home to him. Because if the cause of your suffering is sin and God is disciplining you, you can't pray your way out of that. You can only repent your way out of that. Sometimes we get sick. There's a specific case of this in John chapter 9. The sickness is for the glory of God. There was a man who was born blind from birth. Jesus healed him. His disciples, though, had asked the question, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, neither, but that the works of God may be done in him. In other words, it was God's plan for his glory. I believe with all my heart. Uh, I mean, if you don't know us, we, our daughter Molly was playing keyboards this morning. She's 22 now. She had open heart surgery when she was three days old. She was born with a very rare heart defect. I don't believe that was an accident. I don't believe that was a, a, a genetic a chance abnormality. I believe that was part of the plan of God for the glory of God because God doesn't make mistakes. He knits us and forms us in our mother's womb. Our days are numbered before we're even born. Sometimes we go through trials and this could include physical suffering. The Bible's very clear because of God's pruning and purposes to build our faith, to develop our endurance. That was what God was doing in this situation with Job. So sometimes you, you actually may be going through trials, not because you're unrighteous, not because you're in sin, but because you're righteous, but God is preparing you for more. He's pruning you, purifying you because he's got a bigger assignment for you and he's preparing you for that. But we also need to remember that in reality, all of us suffer some physically simply because we live in a fallen world. Like if somebody gets COVID, I'm not thinking, man, this is the devil giving that to them. We live in a fallen world. I'm not thinking God's giving that to them. We live in a fallen world. There's viruses, there's germs, there's bacteria, there's diseases. Plus, some of us at least are getting older. And we're feeling the effects of the fall more in our bodies every day. We can fight against it, uh, but, you know, I'm 50 now. If I do too much, I hurt. If I don't do enough, I hurt. That's just how it works. The reality is this. You know, I don't care if you're the biggest health nut on planet Earth. I don't care if you never eat anything that's bad for you and you run 10 miles a day, at some point you're going to get sick and die. That's just the reality, right? I mean, you can, run a, you can be a marathoner and still drop dead of a heart attack. It's life in a fallen world. It's pointed unto man wants to die. But now, I don't want that to lead to fatalism. We need to balance this out biblically. We also reap what we sow. And sometimes we suffer physically, and we can't blame it. Listen, if you're eating four Snickers, a gallon of ice cream, and two bags of chips a day, don't go to the doctor and say, this is spiritual warfare. Because <laughs> uh, then he's going to send you to the psychiatrist too. Uh, right? It, it, that we're reaping what we sow at that point. And, and understand, God wants us to control what we can control while trusting him that he's in ultimate control. And you see, the Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that means that we're stewards to be stewards of what God has given us. I mean, a conviction that I've come to in my life is this, that, you know, I can't control how long I live, but I can control what I do day in and day out. And if, if I could somehow know that six months from today, I'm going to drop dead of a heart attack, I'm still going to go to the gym tomorrow. 
because I believe that's what God wants me to do to honor him with my body. You see, we're too much into, you know, comparing ourselves to other people and how we look outwardly and those kind of things and how long we may live and all this kind of stuff. Uh, listen, it's really, I think God wants us to have habits day in and day out that honor him, that, and this is physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, that lead to us uh, living to an, an abundant life in Christ, that lead to us taking care uh, of ourselves and then, you know, leaving the rest up to him. So we can suffer, we, we reap what we sow. In other words, we can, you know, contribute to our health or take away from our health. And let's not over-spiritualize this or get fatalistic, so I'm gonna die, you know, I don't need to take care of myself. Let's honor God as stewards of our body day in and, and, and day out. But a seventh reason the Bible teaches us that we can have physical suffering is there are people who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. There are people right now around the world who bear in their bodies the marks of Jesus Christ because they're being persecuted for their faith. And of course, that honors God. So, um, you know, I'm trying, like I say, what we're specifically talking about here is Satan attacking us with suffering, but I'm also saying I want us to be practical, to be good stewards of our bodies at the, at the same time. That's a biblical thought. Leave the end result of it to the Lord. You know, 12 years ago, I, to, I, I tore my ACL uh, playing basketball. And the thing about tearing an ACL is you just have surgery and somebody puts it back together again. That's how this is supposed to work, right? That's how a reasonable, logical person would think. But apparently at that point in my life, it also affected my brain because I was trying to get out of having surgery. And I look back and I'm like, that's just stupid, how are you thinking this way? And then uh, Charlie Gibson, he may be, he's one of our online hosts. I don't know if he's with us right now or not, but a lot of you know Charlie. You probably ought to pray for Charlie right now. He's the election administrator in Jefferson County, and this is a you know, crazy job at this time. But Charlie had had this surgery before, and he sat me down and had a come to Jesus talk with me about how I was thinking about this. Now, do you understand that part of the reason as a Christian you need to come to church, you need to be in a small group and that kind of thing, is we need accountability, and sometimes we need to have people to have come to Jesus kind of talks with us? That's part of it. And if you won't receive that from another Christian, you're proud. We'll get to pride in just a minute, but that's the truth. And he talked some sense into me, and, and, and I had the surgery. It is one of the best decisions I, I ever made. And, um, you know, six and a half months later, I was playing basketball again because, you know, uh, we prayed about it, sure. Uh, but I listened to some wise counsel, went to great doctors, KOC in Knoxville, took great care of me. But then I did my part because this is one of these surgeries. If you don't rehab afterwards, if you don't take care of yourself, it's not going to do you much good to have had the surgery. And I think that's a pretty good approach, I think. You know, I was stupid at first, but looking back on it, live with wisdom, pray, do what we can to take care of ourselves, and that, I think that's a biblical approach to stewarding our bodies and our health. So Satan works through suffering, attacks our bodies, but what's our defense? Our defense is ultimately trusting the character of God. Look at James 5.11. This is kind of the New Testament synopsis of the story of Job. Look at what it says. It says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure Job endured. Remember earlier in James, the Bible says the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do you, how do you develop endurance? You endure something. There's no other way. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I wish there was, really, but there's no other way. How do you build the endurance to run a marathon? You run a bunch of miles beforehand. How do you develop the strength to bench press 300 pounds? You lift 100 and then 150 and 200 and 250. How do you build spiritual endurance? You go through trials. There's no shortcuts. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and see uh, the end intended by the Lord. It didn't look like it in the moment, but God had a good plan all along and God is compassionate and, and merciful. If we hang on to God's character, that he's good, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, that he's sovereign, that he has a plan, that he has a good end, that he's working all of that out, the more we hang on to that, the more we'll be able to stay strong 
that will have faith, that will be able to endure even during the trials of life. To summarize this one, Wearsby puts it this way. As believers, we have this confidence. God is always in complete control. When God permits Satan to light the furnace, he always keeps his hand on the thermostat. Job did not know what was going on behind the scenes. He had no idea that God was permitting him to suffer so that Satan might be silenced. The real battle was in the heavenly places. Job's home and body were only the arena in which the two combatants, combatants, God and Satan, were struggling against each other. Satan wanted to use Job's body to defeat God and God wanted to use Job's body to defeat Satan. What a way to see we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The battle may be happening in our body, in our home, in our marriage, with our kids, at our workplace, at our school, in our relationships, but the real combatants are in the heavenly places. So Satan is the destroyer, the weapon of suffering, the target of our body, our defense to trust the character of God. But here's his third strategy. Satan is the ruler, or at least he wants to be. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. Now, remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago. If you're in Christ, his authority over you is broken. He has no authority over you. But if we fall prey to his deceptions, if we give in when we're suffering, we can give Satan authority in our lives functionally at a given moment that he doesn't actually have. So, When Satan wants to rule over us, what's the weapon he uses? The weapon he uses is pride. It's pride. Now, I have a pride problem. You have a pride problem. Every human being has a pride problem. It's the root and the essence of sin. It's what made the devil the devil. It's what brought Eve into that place of sin that we looked at last week. Now, we're, we're going to look at an example, once again, the Old Testament, the example of David. Now, when you think about King David, there's a, obviously a lot of great things we could say about him. But usually, when people think about David's biggest sin, so to speak, usually what comes to mind? Bathsheba, right? He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had, his, uh, had her husband killed to cover it up. And, um, you know, obviously that was a, a terrible thing. But I think sometimes, you know, as Christians, we jump on people for sins like that, sins of the flesh, but forget that God hates the sins of the Spirit just as much. In fact, seven deadly sins in Proverbs chapter 6, pride's number one on the list. Now, sin, sin, but the consequences of sin can be different. You know how many people died as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba? Four. In the account we're going to look at today, where David was prideful, and, and that's not the only thing that's going on. God was also judging the sin of his people Israel. 70,000 people died. Now, part of that has to do with the fact, and we need to remember this, need to remember this, you vote. Anything a leader does or says has multiplied exponential consequences. Never forget that. Anything a leader does or says, and this is in any realm of life, has multiplied exponential consequences. It's why, God, it's why Scripture says, as spiritual leaders, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you'll receive a stricter judgment. But in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21... Well, what was leading up to this is is you see David winning victory after victory. The nation growing in its wealth and power and influence. But you know what? A lot of times we're at our most spiritually vulnerable, not during hard times when we know we have to depend on the Lord, but after a victory. Maybe we start to take credit for it. We start feeling good about ourselves. And you know what? Satan would be happy to give us a victory that ultimately leads to our defeat through pride uh, as opposed to us having a defeat where we humble ourselves and it ultimately leads to victory. David was winning all these victories. He was getting proud 
apparently the, his people were sinning too, maybe from his effect, because in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, it says, the, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. But then we see in 1 Chronicles 21.1, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. How does this work together? Well, in every situation, God's working, Satan's working. Listen, the Bible says Satan tempts us when we're led away by the desires of our own heart. This was already in David's heart. God is using Satan to tempt him to expose his pride so he can ultimately repent and at the same time judge the nation for their sin. Um, it says, now Satan stood up against Israel, moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be accused of guilt in Israel. So Joab, who is not, does not seem to be a particularly godly man in the Old Testament, is warning him against this. You know, sometimes how pride manifests in our lives is when we don't seek or listen to wise counsel. We just want our own way, or we think we know better than everybody else, and that's pride. And David didn't listen to him. And Joab couldn't defy him. He was the king. He tried to talk him out of it, but he had to go along with him. So he, he carried out David's instructions. And then it says, after he did it in verse 7, and this took about like 9 to 10 months. David had a lot of time to repent. But it says, God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I've done this thing but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And how many times in our lives have we acted on pride and been like, I can't believe I did that. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. So, Satan's weapon is pride. But his, his, where he attacks, his, his target is our will. See, the Bible teaches us that, you know, in our soul, there's the mind, the will, and the emotions. True faith is, you know, knowing something in our mind, accepting it as true. But because we believe it's true, our hearts turn toward God. We, we love him, but then our wills are surrendered to the Lord. True faith is surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. True faith is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but your will be done. Warren Wiersbe, again, puts it this way. Satan's goal is to always get to the will and control it. We must never underestimate the importance of the will in the Christian life. The Christian life is basically a matter of the will. A dedicated Christian prays whether he feels like it or not. He obeys the word of God regardless of his own feelings. The believer who lives on his emotions is repeatedly up and down. Uh, he or she lives on a religious roller coaster. But the believer who lives on the basis of spiritual willpower has a consistent Christian life and a steady ministry that is not threatened by changing circumstances or feelings. In other words, by an act of the will, we choose to get up in the morning and pray and spend time in God's word and worship. And by an act of the will, we say, hey, I'm coming to church on Sunday mornings if I can at all, and I'm gonna worship the Lord. By an act of the will, I'm gonna serve God. I'm gonna obey. It's a choice and our feelings follow our choices, and it should work this way, instead of us just doing whatever we feel like. So what's our defense then? If, if Satan is targeting our will with pride, our defense is humbling ourselves and submitting to God. 
James 4 says this, God resists the proud. He stiff arms. He pushes away the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. But then the question is, say, humble ourselves. How do we humble ourselves? How do we live more humbly? Well, I would submit to you that the way to be more humble is not to try to be humble. Because the problem uh, becomes uh, two things. First of all, if we're trying to be humble, we're focusing on ourselves. And the essence of humility is not even thinking about ourselves, uh, not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less because we're more focused on Jesus. But the other problem with trying to become more humble is then we get proud of our humility. You understand, we're in a constant battle against pride. Even as I was preparing this message, well, really, it's after the message was already prepared this week, I encountered a situation where I needed to have a conversation with someone that triggered two of my pride temptations. I have trouble sometimes if I don't respect someone a whole lot, not being haughty when interacting with them. That's pride. I have trouble sometimes. I wanted to be a lawyer. I think I would have been pretty good at it because I, I can use words and logic and reason and get people twisted around if I really want to and feel good about it, which is just wicked. It, 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 it's pride. And so I had to fight against that by the grace of God in approaching that conversation. I think God gave me grace to do well with it in the conversation. I don't know about some of my thoughts leading up to it, but uh, God forgives. But uh, we're all battling pride. How do we overcome it? Here's what I think the key to overcoming pride is. It's the gospel. When we go to the cross and realize that we are so sinful and we are so lacking in righteousness and so lacking in the ability to justify ourselves before God that it took the death of the Son of God to make us right with God. What basis do we have to be proud of anything? The more we're focused on the gospel, the more humble we're gonna be. It's the only way to be humble. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that Christians, real Christians, are the only people who ever even have a problem with, see a problem with pride in themselves. So Satan's weapon is pride. His target is our will. But our defense, our defense is the gospel, humbling ourselves, submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Last, strategy number four. He's a deceiver, he's a destroyer, he's the ruler. But Satan is the accuser. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. This is how Satan works. He tempts us on the front end, he condemns us on the back end. Now think about it. What's a temptation? If something's tempting you, I want this, I deserve this, this is gonna feel good, this is gonna look good, this is gonna taste good. Nobody's gonna know, it's not gonna hurt anything, it's gonna be all right. That's the voice of the enemy. But then on the back end, what's Satan say? This is gonna hurt everybody. You couldn't be really, really be a Christian and do this. You couldn't be a pastor and have had this thought or you couldn't be a pastor, you couldn't be a Christian and have said this. You're awful, you're horrible, you're no good, you're a fake, you're a fraud, you're a hypocrite. Sooner or later, everybody's gonna find out who you really are. It's the voice of the enemy. You know, sometimes Satan accuses us with false guilt. Some of us, our personality is wired where, you know, we can feel guilty about things we hadn't even done wrong. It's the voice of the enemy. He tempts on the front end. He accuses on the back end. Here's an example from the Old Testament, Zechariah 3.1. Joshua, the high priest, who would symbolically here represent the nation of Israel and their sinful rebellion against the Lord. 
He was standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is an Old Testament term for a pre-incarnate appearance, a Christophany. This is talking about Jesus, the Son of God. So you've got Joshua, you've got Jesus, and it says Satan is standing at his right hand to oppose him. But look at what the Lord said to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And if you're a Christian, that's what you are. You're a brand plucked from the fire. I don't care what your spiritual performance is saying at a given moment. Our salvation is not dependent on our spiritual performance. It's dependent upon the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. But notice verse three. It says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. He was guilty. But the Lord had already rebuked Satan, even though he was guilty. The next time you're guilty, I hope this verse will stick, this picture will stick in your head. That Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's your heavenly lawyer. He's your heavenly advocate. And Satan may be accusing you to the Father, but Jesus is, re is rebuking Satan. Jesus is defending you. He's saying, he's mine. He belongs to me. He's covered by my blood. He's justified. He's forgiven. He's accepted in the beloved. He's blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. In Christ, this is what you have. And if you're not in Christ, this is what you need. So verse four, it says, then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you from, with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua uh, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you uh, shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. So his weapon is accusation. His target is our conscience and our heart just to get us to despair and, and, and wallow in guilt. But our defense, what we see here, our defense is the finished work of the Son of God on our behalf. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. He is defending us. Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He deals with our actions, but he doesn't condemn us for who we are. That's the voice of the enemy. So the next time you're thinking these thoughts of, oh, I can't believe I've done this again. I'm so terrible. I'm such a horrible person. God can never love me. God can never accept me. I'm too bad. I'm too wicked. God can never use me. Uh, do what Jesus did and quote Satan is quote scripture to Satan that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ and I am in Christ Jesus so I am not condemned I am loved I am accepted I am a beloved child of God that's who I am listen when your kids mess up when your kids mess up do you cuss them out do you tell them how horrible they are do you correct them do you try to help them change their behavior I hope you don't cuss them out. I hope you don't tell them how horrible they are. I hope you don't call them names and that kind of thing. If you do, we got a counselor. You can get some help with that. But I do hope you correct them. Do you think God's a worse parent than you are? Do you think God, our Heavenly Father, is going to call you names? That's the voice of the enemy. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He says, we're clean, we're pure, we're righteous. Ephesians uh, 1.7 says that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Listen, the riches of the grace of God are an inexhaustible bank account that were purchased on the cross that you can never overdraw. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 7 that we are continually being cleansed. This is a literal translation of it, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Listen, we all still sin. We're forgiven of sin, but there's still some sins in our life, if we're honest about it. But notice what verse 9 says. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So when we sin, Satan's tempted us, we give in on the front end. On the back end, he's gonna come to accuse us, and you're no good, you're, you're no good, you're a hypocrite, you're gonna get exposed. See, that's gonna pull us away from the Father. But when we hear the voice of the Spirit, and see, the Spirit convicts us of sin. See, when we sin, what does God want us to do? He wants us to admit it. To confess means to agree with God. Yes, this was wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me to change. Help me not to do it again. God, fill me with your spirit. When we come to God with that heart, uh, notice what it says. It says he is faithful. You know what that means is? That, that means anytime we come with God in genuine confession and repentance, he's faithful to forgive us. Not if we haven't done too bad or not if he's in a good mood that day or, or, or not if it's not a certain sin. He's faithful, but he's also just to forgive us of our sins. Think about it. God can justly forgive us because Jesus has already paid for that sin. You don't have to be afraid to take your sin to the Father. He knows it. Jesus has paid for it. Confess it. Be cleansed. Move on with life. Don't listen to the condemnation of the enemy, but it's so easy to do. But then the last thing is we see in these verses, we can repent and walk in God's ways by living out of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, grace is not an excuse to keep sinning. Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You see, change comes from the inside out. And as we're uh, coming to Jesus, we're relying on his grace, we're, we're confessing sin, we're being filled with the spirit. He's gonna enable us to change so we don't have to live in this cycle of ongoing sin. Listen, Satan's a liar. Satan's a murderer. He wants to destroy us. But over the last two weeks, we've watched his game film. He, he still has the same strategies today. He may dress them up outwardly a little bit, but this is still what he's doing today. He's deceiving us. He's, he's telling us lies. He's targeting our mind. But listen, if we'll know and believe and, and stand on and act on the truth of the word of God, we can repel his attack. Satan is a destroyer, and he can bring suffering uh, to us. He can target our bodies, but if we'll trust in the character of God, that God's good, and God's working for our good, and, and God's faithful, and God has a plan, and he's in control, we may hurt physically, but we can grow spiritually in the middle of it. Listen, Satan is the ruler, and, and he's targeting our wills with pride. But if we'll focus on the gospel, all of this comes back to Jesus. When we put on the armor of God, we're putting on Jesus. If we'll focus on Jesus and him crucified and resurrected, his finished work on our behalf, and, and, and give up on our self-righteousness by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit as we submit, we can grow in humility, not by self-effort, but by God's work in us. And then when we do sin... Or maybe we just feel guilty when we haven't even sinned, when Satan's accusing us, and he will. When he wants us to live in guilt, if we stand on the finished work of the Son of God, if we confess our sins, we can live in peace, we can live in victory. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Are you in Christ? Have you humbled yourself? The Bible talks about receiving him like a little child. Admitted you're a sinner. Remember, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you admitted you're a sinner? Have you admitted that you have no, self, that you have no righteousness on your own? That you deserve to die and go to hell and just ran to the cross? Said, Jesus, you are my only hope. It's only through you dying for me. It's only through you paying for my sins. I need your grace and your mercy. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When we come to the end of ourselves and come to Christ and receive him in humble repentance and faith, that's when we have a relationship with God. Have you done that? Are you trusting in him? Have you humbled yourself to rely on Jesus? And if you are a Christian, How's Satan attacking you right now? What truth do you need to apply? What sin 
do you need to confess? Folks, let's just get real. This is real life. We struggle in our minds. Is this true? We sometimes deal with physical suffering and just all the mental, emotional, um, spiritual repercussions of that. Is this true? We struggle with pride. Right? Is this true? Are you prideful? Let's admit it. It's good for the soul. We're prideful. We struggle with guilt. Right? Condemning thoughts. We beat ourselves up. But what God wants us to see is he wants us to see the story behind the story. That we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. To see where it's coming from. To know that it's a spiritual attack and it takes spiritual weapons to overcome it. Listen, these notes are in your app. I would encourage you, I'd encourage you to get Wearsby's book, Strategy of Satan, but I'd encourage you to take these notes and take your Bible and just work through these on your own, how it applies to your life. I mean, I, I'm just giving you an overview in, you know, 45 minutes or whatever it's been. Um, but this is something we got to wrestle and work out in our lives day in and day out. I can't do it for you. I got to do it for me. Just like I said, you know, I, I face a situation that kind of triggers my pride even after I've studied this, this week. That's, that's the Christian life. As we deal with things, we take God's word, we seek God, we let God work in us, and that's how we learn and grow and overcome day in and day out. We do that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and I want to lead us in prayer. If you're not a Christian, I just invite you to call on the name of Jesus and ask him to forgive you and ask him to come in your life and express your faith to him. If you need to talk to somebody about that, come see me when we're finished. Pastor Philip, be in the lobby. Or talk to somebody you know and feel comfortable with. Or if you're online, uh, you can go in the chat room and let one of our hosts know that you'd like to talk to somebody about that and, and, and they're trained to walk through that with you. Or you can text us. Uh, you can text TLC Decision, lowercase uh, to 94,000, and somebody, you can fill out that form, somebody will follow up with you on that. But if you're a Christian, is there a lie you're believing? Do you need to get in God's word, know his truth? Is there something you need to trust God with? Is there a sin you need to confess? Is there an area you're struggling with and Satan's condemning you where you need to claim the truth of God of the finished work of Jesus Christ? God, I pray that you give us the grace, Lord, to claim your truth, to apply it in our lives. Father, I pray that you pour out your saving grace in the lives of people who don't know you. God, I pray that you would take the victory that Jesus won on the cross and apply it in our lives. And Lord, we praise your name and thank you for everything you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before you go, real quick, let me just thank you again for being